hormones are going crazy and my body's like, ooh, yeah. He's human-splaining. We'll never know unless we also get to kiss aliens. Hello and welcome to Pass the Hot Sauce, a Roswell podcast. I'm Aliza Ora. I'm Lisa Abigail. And I'm Lorena Rose. We're here to talk about every episode of the 1999 WB series Roswell, one episode at a time and spoiler free. Today, we are discussing season one, episode 10, The Balance. According to IMDb, this is the one where Michael becomes very ill after an encounter with Riverdog. Max and Liz have their first date, and Alex questions Isabel about their alien side. This episode was written by Zanya St. John and directed by John Baring. This is the only episode of Roswell he directs. Uh, around this time, he also directed 10 episodes of Charmed, and then an episode here and there of some other teen shows of that time. More recently, he directed a handful of Vampire Diaries episodes and Grimm episodes, and also a few Arrow. And most recently, he's been directing the cop show Blue Bloods. This episode originally aired on the 15th of December, 1999. And we open at the crash down, and I really liked this opening scene. I thought it was adorable. Yes, I agreed. I thought it was so cute. And then just the juxtaposition of uh, of Liz just being like, sometimes everything's so perfect. And then Maria is just like, this day sucks. <laughs> there are some really good lines in here. Uh, I really like Maria's little Disney reference. If it isn't Prince Charming and Quasimodo. Oof. All <laughs> yes. right. All right, Maria, I see you. And uh, we find out that the diner serves men in blackberry pie, which I would very much like to eat. That sounds excellent. Me too. And we also find out that there is a place in town called the House of Pies. And that sounds amazing. I want to go there. Field trip. There is a real House of Pies in Houston, Texas, and it's amazing. As soon as they said House of Pies, I was like, Oh, is House of Pies a chain? Is this a thing that really exists in Roswell? And I googled it, but sadly, there is not really a House of Pies in Roswell. But there is really one in Houston, Texas. So yummy. All the pies. A million bajillion pies. Nice. Well, we are recording this right around Thanksgiving time, so any one of our houses could become a House of Pies if we play our cards right. Oh, it's yes. True. That sounds like a great idea. I might bake a pie tonight. But we should not use Maria's recipe uh, because as Liz says, Max likes cherry cola and Maria says, well, Michael likes cherry cola with arsenic. <laughs> yeah. It's a little a little dramatic. I understand if you're mad, but murder a is a little much. Well, Michael's also very dramatic when Max is like, is something wrong? And Michael says, compared to nuclear winter, No. Like, ah, this is the kind of teen over-the-top drama that I appreciate when they're, like, making fun of it. It's silly. It's fun. Everyone's having a good time. It's very cute. So I love how they then bring the drinks over, and Liz goes, yours is on the house. And Maria just slyly, yours is 125. <laughs> so yes. good. Also then, like, I, I don't get what happens after this, because... Michael's soda spills, but, like, it's unclear how that happens because Michael, like, at the same time, Michael stands up and Max leans over for some reason and knocks Michael's drink over. Like, why did he, why was he even leaning over? I thought he was, like, getting up, like, he saw Michael getting up to leave and was getting up to be like, what are you doing? But, yeah, I mean, I think the answer is they just needed the drink to spill so that we could have the reveal of the cave drawings. Yes. Plot reasons. Yeah. It's just they didn't do a good job. The choreography on that wasn't stellar. And why is he even carrying around the cave drawings in his school notebook? I mean, I guess the house isn't safe because it's been broken into. So keep your stuff on your person. But And then we get our opening credits, right? Mm -hmm. So we come back after the credits and we're still in the crash down. I love Maria's little alien voodoo doll. That she's like stabbing with little with little restaurant toothpicks. It's very dramatic and totally on brand for Maria. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. 
maybe it's kind of effective because Michael gets sick later. Maybe she set this whole series of events in motion without even knowing it. Whoa. And she is not happy. Mm-mm. She is not happy when he gets sick. So maybe no. think twice before sticking toothpicks into a voodoo doll. <laughs> yeah. Yes. A lesson we should all take to heart. Yes. Also, did anyone notice that Maria is wearing a pin that says waitress from hell? Yes. <laughs> no, I did not. That's great. I don't know what kind of effect it has on her tips, though. Yeah. I'd be a little worried about that. Maybe she's not worried about tips. Maybe they pool their tips, so. In that case, like, screw her for making everybody get fewer tips. (laughs) (laughs) She has this fun exchange with Alex, who has taken a few days to think about the whole alien thing, and now he has two theories. One is that Maria and Liz have been brainwashed by a drug cult. And the other is that Alex is trapped inside some extremely long, extremely weird nightmare. I like that these are his only two possible options. Because for some reason he thinks that they are more rational than the idea that they could be aliens, which I don't really think so. Yeah, I think the fact that there's other beings out there in the universe somewhere is actually pretty rational. Whether or not they are here, they exist. Yeah, the idea of drugs seems to be like a running theme, though, where I wonder if the network was like, just get in as many anti-drug references as you can. Remember, drugs are bad. They make you do crazy things. Yeah, maybe you get grants if you make your TV show about anti-drugs. Maybe you have to have so many anti-drug references and then you get more money for your TV show. Yeah. And this is like Maria's really hurting. It's very sad. She tells Alex that the aliens won't hurt him, at least not physically. I was like, oh, oh, poor Rosita. Yeah. Uh, and so she warns Alex not to get involved with them. She says, with her and Michael, the passion was outrageous. But in the end, they're pretty heartless. She's like, oh, buddy, this is brutal. <laughs> and then what does he do? He's like, maybe I'll go talk to Isabel about it. She seems like the right one to talk to. <laughs> After she's like, don't get involved. He's like, oh, I'm just gonna, uh, yeah, I'm just gonna go talk to Isabel. He's just collecting more evidence for his theories, you know? He's got to test those hypotheses. It's just for science. Yeah. So we go to Max's room, and I understand him not telling Michael about the cave drawings. Like, I think it's kind of crappy, but I get that Michael has proven time and again to be very impulsive. But why doesn't... Max show them to Isabel like it seems uh I don't like it that he has shared this huge thing with Liz that's a secret to his past and like Isabel and Michael's past also and Liz knows about it but they don't that doesn't seem fair yeah I mean I get that Liz was there when it happened so obviously she saw it but then for her to be in on this secret and Isabel and Michael to not just feels wrong and it definitely feels like a trend of max trusting liz more than he should and uh you know kind of keeping things from who the people who are essentially his siblings right yeah and we've talked about this before like he's elevating his romantic relationship above his relationship with his family which is kind of a big red flag And family meaning, you know, the people who love and care for you and are there for you, which I think Michael and Isabel clearly are. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's just like, Mm -hmm. well, I'm a smart dude and I'm the leader and I'm going to make all the decisions by myself with Liz because she's pretty and I like her hair. (laughs) And like giving himself different rules to abide by than, than they have. Yeah. Not fair. I also noticed in the scene that Max has a poster of Moby's CD play, Mm -hmm. which is the CD that Kyle left in Liz's room and Max flashed on in the episode Missing. So that must be just making the rounds. Um, And a few episodes ago, I I don't think I said this, but he had a Friends of Dean Martinez poster in his room and Isabel had posters for Sebado and Donald Glaude. So now we know their musical tastes. These None of these yes, are artists that I listen to, but I look them all up and Friends of Dean Martinez is like instrumental, chill, 
and Donald Glaude is like house, like and Sabudo, I kind of really enjoyed. They're like that '90s alternative, yeah, like nice. I knew Sabudo, poppy alternative thing. Yeah, it's like not really what I imagined Isabel listening to, though. Right, and like it's an interesting mix of like the house music and then the like very lyrical, nice alt pop rocky music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Max says that he drew the images from memory, but like. Didn't he see it once? Or is it like drawing it from memory like the spiral symbol? Mm. Yeah, that's the impression that I got. Like these things are their alien language and so they like imprint sort of on their memory. Okay, that's what yeah. I was thinking. Like it's it tapped him into some deeper knowledge that he already had and it just brought it to the surface. That's how I was interpreting it. Oh, also, I while we were talking about posters, did anyone see the other weird poster that Max had in his room of, like, toys doing surgery? It was, like, this what? weird thing of toys in an operating room. I thought they were, like, potato people. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> and, like, they were doing butt surgery, I think. That's what it looked like. It was very weird. <laughs> I am apparently not observant enough. Because I did not see this at all. <laughs> oh, it's like prominently featured behind Max's head. Like Max and Michael are having this charged discussion and it's really intense. And I was just like, why are they cutting open that potato butt? <laughs> what is happening? Uh, and then it becomes clear that Max has a date with Liz. Ooh. And he's like, oh, it's not a date. And Isabel's like, "Why? well, then why are you changing your shirt? To which I say he was not changing his shirt. He put a sweater on over his shirt. Yeah. Maybe it's cold outside, Isabel. It's winter. It's the desert. It gets cold at night. I yeah. think Isabel is just feeling left out of the whole human-alien romance thing. She's like, as we learn later, she likes to keep things platonic with the dudes. And now, like, Michael yeah. has Maria and Max has Liz, who, you know, they just both kind of felt like Chinese food which is why they go to a pool hall. A pool hall that serves Chinese food. It's like the weirdest Chinese food restaurant I have ever seen. They did have Chinese food there. You know how the Chinese love their billiards. Also, what happened to Isabel? Didn't Isabel have all these dates? Like, what about those people? One and done. Two and done, I guess. Because she was like, oh, and I also have a date next Friday I'd like to go on. But was it a different dude? Like a different first date with a different dude? Or is it two dates, same dude? Right. So, okay, I have questions about the next scene because Michael is at the reservation. I assume that Max has his Jeep while he's on his date with Liz and also wouldn't loan Michael his car. Did he borrow Maria's mom's car? Did he take a bus? How did he get to the reservation by himself? Because I think if he had gone to Maria and said, I want to borrow your car to go or your mom's car to go to the reservation, Maria would have been like, I'm going with you. Yeah. So, like, where did he... Did he walk? How far away is the reservation? I was under the impression that it was far. Yeah, the real-life one is, like, an hour and a half away from Roswell, I think. So, I assume it's not, like, right outside of town. Maybe he hitchhiked. That's also possible. I feel like Michael would not be beyond hitchhiking. Yeah. That's true. He's also not beyond just walking up to an older lady sitting in a chair and just accosting her, being like, I'm here, give me things, tell me things. He didn't even say hello. He's so rude to her. He's very rude. Fortunately, handsome Eddie is back to be like, she's not deaf, she's just not answering you. Hi, Eddie. Eddie's so cute, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but this brings me to a more serious question, which is, where are all the Mesolico women? We so far have seen two, the jewelry salesperson who has a couple lines, and then this woman who just sits there silently. And otherwise, all we see are men, which, so there are a lot of, like, native stereotypes that are perpetuated in this episode. I'm going to talk a little bit about them now, if you guys are cool with that. Yeah. Yes, please do. So I think this is continuing a lot of uh, terrible Hollywood traditions. And so we see this with River Dog. Um, Native American men, they can either be vicious savages, or they can be noble warriors, or they can be stoic wise men. They can be mystical shamans, 
or they can be bumbling comic relief who are usually also alcoholics. Like those are the options. Pick one and Mm. that's what you can do. That's it. Those are the only character choices. Native American women in media can be submissive. They can be sex objects or they can just be completely ignored. Like that's really it, right? And so in this, we sort of see them as we don't see them. They're invisible. Like I said, this is part of a long Hollywood tradition of othering Native people and of sort of associating them with these mystical powers that are entirely at the disposal of white people. The Native characters tend to exist only to help the white people to help them connect with their spiritual side or to help them complete their journey or to help them find what's really important to them. And we totally see that in these episodes, like, Eddie and Riverdog are just there to help Max and in this episode, Michael, who like for all intents and purposes are white men Mm -hmm. to just help them on their mission. And then we don't see them again. We never see them outside of the reservation. We never see any native people in Roswell or anywhere else. They exist only on the reservation. This is the only place they're allowed to be. And again, like they're not full characters, They are tools that the white people use to help them get where they're going. And so that really bothered me. And the total exclusion of uh, indigenous women from this conversation, like it, so it it brought up for me, there's a, I don't know how much y'all know about this, but there's a movement to gain public attention for the plight of American Indian women nationwide. Um, if you're interested in this, look up missing and murdered indigenous women. But the idea is that like native women are subject to much more violence than the population at large. Um, the murder rates for American Indian women are more than 10 times the national average. And the murders are usually committed by people who are not native. There are a lot of Uh, complicated jurisdictional issues with tribal police being allowed to arrest certain perpetrators but not others and then you have to get the Bureau of Indian Affairs or the FBI involved. Anyway, it's very complicated. I would encourage everyone to look into this. I'll put some notes in our show notes but I think that it's like part and parcel of this whole idea that we sort of completely marginalize a population of people and particularly the women who we never see, never talk about, never really acknowledge, even when they are going missing and being murdered at astounding and horrifying rates. Again, I'll put up the reading material, but if anyone wants to watch a movie that I think handles this pretty well, Wind River from 2017, which was written and directed by Taylor Sheridan, and he said he wrote it specifically to bring attention to this issue of Native women who are sexually assaulted and murdered. So if you're looking for something a lot heavier than Roswell, but um, also I think a lot more impactful, that might be something to check out. Sorry, I, uh, I know that was heavy and sad, but I think it's important to talk about. Yeah, it's really important, especially since this episode totally falls within what you were describing. Uh, it's important for us to acknowledge the shortcomings of it. Yeah, and River Dog we see later, like he's the stoic, magical medicine man who has this innate connection with the elements. And again, he just uses it to help these white dudes who come to him. And basically, like they don't even ask, they just demand help. And he's like, okay. Yeah. So we'll talk about that more later when we get to it. Um, but it's not good. We were, like, a little bit, I think, proud of Roswell in the, um, in 285 South and River Dog for, like, not handling this as badly as they could have. And then this episode came along, and I was like, oh, yep, there it is. Yeah, I mean, we kind of expected it before River Dog, so I guess I we were just lucky that River Dog wasn't that bad. Yeah, they were like, don't worry, we've got all the stereotypes covered. Just you wait. But back to the main storyline and a little bit lighter subject material we have this fun conversation between Alex and Isabel and Alex, Alex, like there are a lot of cute lines in this episode. Alex says, why on earth? Oh, uh," and then gets really embarrassed. Like, Oh no, I shouldn't say that, that the E word. Oh no. He's like, Oh, excuse the phrase. Why would you be sent here to begin with? And Isabel's just like to murder people like you. (laughs) (laughs) But even before that, I loved the line where Alex, because he's so, like, sure of things, you know, he's so sure that, like, what he thinks is right. He says, the human body is the most complex and intricate machine in the universe. 
it's like, oh, do you know that? Especially now that you know that there may be aliens, you know that the human body is the machine that's the most intricate. Okay. I Yeah, I think this whole thing is challenging his worldview. So he's going to learn to open up a little bit yeah. by the end of this episode. By the end of this conversation, really. He gets on board kind of quickly. Yeah. I think this is an interesting theme that they start with where Isabel says, we probably have more questions about ourselves than you do, which of course is like she's talking about their alien nature. But I also think it's uh, an interesting theme for like introspection and especially in the adolescent time period when you're questioning and trying to like seek out your own identity. It's like you always have more questions about yourself than other people do. And I think Isabel is particularly introspective and would be thinking about these questions of identity regardless of whether she was an alien or a human. But they are like really, they're hitting the teen alienation metaphor just over the head. Like it's so obvious. As our favorite librarian from another show, Rupert Giles, might say, I believe the subtext here is rapidly becoming text. (laughs) Oh, yeah. A minute ago, you said something about Isabel being so introspective and having questions about herself. And it's interesting because I feel like Isabel is kind of the quietest one of the three aliens, you know, Mm -hmm. with like, I feel like Michael being the loudest and then Max and then Isabel with their questions and their, uh, you know, journeys to find answers to those questions. Um, And all because... Isabel is quieter doesn't mean she doesn't have these questions. I think she may even have more and is just working on thinking about them and quietly figuring them out. Mm -hmm. So I have a question at the end of this scene, Isabel turns the ketchup in the bottle into mustard or just yellow ketchup. What do we think? Oh, I thought yellow ketchup, but mustard maybe makes sense. But then Heinz did have that whole campaign years ago where they had the green ketchup and the purple oh, ketchup. Yeah. Who knows? Would, maybe this was around the same time. I'm just picturing some <laughs> server who has to come around, probably Maria, who has to come around later and, you know, like refill all the ketchup <laughs> bottles, just be like, what the? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully she's going to turn it back. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe she does. I feel like it is a, a little rude. <laughs> right. Well, like <laughs> you don't turn it she back. she seems to change the colors of like she changed the color of Liz's nail polish without asking. She changes yeah. the color of the ketchup. I mean, she's just she's not asking for permission. She's just doing what she wants. It is customary to ask before changing colors of things. Yeah, before yeah. altering the molecular <laughs> structure of nearby objects. It would just be polite. Yeah, it's just it's just etiquette. Rules of etiquette. Speaking of terrible etiquette. Oh, yes. Speaking of terrible etiquette, indeed, good segue, we go back to Mesalico tribe, or reservation, rather, you know, just in time for Michael to insist on, you know, barging in on this very sacred, it seems, uh, ceremony, this sweating ceremony. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I was wondering, you know, because we know that the Mesalico tribe in the show is based on the Mescalero tribe in real life. So I was wondering if they have any kind of ceremony like that. And from a little bit of research I did, um, I didn't see anything on like sweat lodge or any kind of sweating ceremonies like that. Um, Everything that I found pointed to this one very important ceremony. Um, And this I found from MescaleroApacheTribe.com. So credible. When girls first start to menstruate, there is this four-day-long ceremony. It's a rite of passage, um, and there are feasts. Uh, they have to bring a medicine man and a medicine woman. There are masked dancers singing and drumming, um, lots of blessings, rituals. It takes sometimes up to a year to plan for. The girls' family will be doing all this planning and inviting people and basically hosting this big event. Um, And the girl wears a ceremonial dress and has specific sacred items that she has to have. And so the story goes that the ceremony was given by the white painted woman. So the girl who is being honored by the ceremony dresses and acts like the white painted woman. And discipline is really important during this time. And she is not called by her name during the ceremony. She's only called the white painted woman. And it just seemed like a really rich tradition and... I found it very interesting to read about. So while that's not what I was looking for, I did learn about, you know, some Mescalero Apache traditions. Oh, that's cool. 
And a lot more nuanced than what we see. Yeah. Which is a bunch of shirtless dudes with uh, baby smooth chests in the case of Eddie and Michael because Mm -hmm. it's the late 90s and that's the style. (laughs) And they are chanting a piece called Incantation from the show Kidom by Cirque du Soleil. Oh my gosh. How, Oh my God. How did you find that out? So it's listed, you know, I look up all the music to see which uh, songs have been replaced. Someone has a live journal that's still active. Didn't know that was still a thing. But it it must be from like when the DVDs (laughs) first came out. And I believe the DVD and streaming music are the same. But anyway, this was listed in the credits and I looked it up and found it confirmed in a few other places. And it was listed as Incantation and the artist was Cirque du Soleil. And I was like, well, that can't be right. It must be like an indigenous band that I've never heard of. No. Nope, it's a it's the Canadian guy who ran this show, wrote it. It's like a world beat type of song. It has nothing to do with native people. It's not even wow. supposed to be religious in any way. It's just someone thought, that's a cool song. Let's make it into a sacred native ritual. No one will ever know the difference. While I don't think that that's the correct way to go about things, I do feel like that's better than incorrectly or disrespectfully using an actual indigenous chant. Yes. Yeah. So while I still am a little appalled, I'm like less appalled than if they'd incorrectly used something that was uh, had real value to indigenous yeah, people. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing that like. I'm not sure that using a Cirque du Soleil thing or even like making up random sounds to sound like a chant is any better or any worse than using one and bastardizing it. So here's my solution. Don't do this. Yeah. Don't have native people be props in your show and don't just make up random songs to sing because you think it's cool and unique and fun. Just don't do it. Don't do it. The end. I fixed it. I solved the problem. Or if you want to have representation of Native people, have them consult. Have them tell you what is okay to show. You know, have them choose how they are represented. Yeah. Have them in the writer's room. Yeah. Like, it's not that hard. And right. So I think, like, I don't want to say that there are no ways for non-native people to make art portraying native people respectfully i think that there are but again yeah like you said you have to have input from native people and you also like they can't just show up when it's convenient for the plot you have to have fully fleshed out native characters who are a part of your story yeah who don't just pop in when you need a specific thing and they just like serve that purpose and then they melt away into the shadows and you never hear from Mm -hmm. them again like, this just, uh, this is so annoying. I hate it so much. It's so dumb. And it also, like, doesn't make sense. Is They say later that the heat is what makes Michael sick, but, like, it also seems like drinking from the bowl makes him sick or the stuff that River Dog is, like, throwing in the fire. Yeah. I'm not really sure, like, what's supposed to have... The cinnamon. The, the cinnamon. <laughs> is that what you said, Lorena? Yeah. Yes. Cinnamon makes um, snap, crackle, mm. pot. Yeah, it does. I also don't understand what the test is supposed to be and how Michael fails it. Eddie leaves the tent even before Michael does. Like, I don't really... None of this made a lot of narrative sense to me. I don't get it. I just don't get it. I do like, though, that they essentially call Michael out by the fact that he's like, I can handle it. Like, I'm I'm fine. I'm so tough. And then he is just coughing and sputtering and really not that tough. Yeah. <laughs> I also don't super understand why Isabel shows Alex the drawings that Max did. Like, maybe she's just mad at Max for being like, I get to design. But, like, she was the one who was most worried. She didn't want Michael drawing the dome at the diner. She has been like, we can't tell people, what are you doing? What are you doing? doing?" And she's just carrying it around, like, opening it up to show him in a public place. At the diner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I also had a big problem with the Chinese restaurant pool situation, which we are finally now literally at that in my notes. They are on their date at a Chinese food place where then they also like slow dance (laughs) in the empty restaurant. Yeah. So weird. It looks like there are only bar tables. Like they're at a high table with stools. It doesn't look like a regular restaurant. It doesn't look like any restaurant, let alone a Chinese restaurant. But at one point in the scene, it becomes clear that it is a Chinese restaurant. 
like they oh because of their fortune cookies oh right it's just very weird also there is a uh asian themed like look through window built into the set somewhere where they like you kind of like see them through the window i think it was and it's like this kind of circular window with the kind of like laser cut wood in like an oriental pattern oh okay that like you'd see on like I don't know, like a seal or on a coin or something like that was like, I was like, okay, well, they tried to make this look like a Chinese food restaurant, but still, why is there pool and slow dancing happening? It's very weird. Also, one thing that I do like about this scene is, you know, they're playing pool and they kind of turn that very tired trope of a man teaching a woman and using it as an excuse to kind of stand behind her and fondle her um they turned it on its head because liz is teaching max and he is still is like standing behind her but that's not really the point of it it's like he doesn't know how to play and she's teaching him and i like that yeah Liz is a total pool shark (laughs) yeah yeah so i as y'all know don't care for max and liz as a couple because of their angsty nonsense I really like them when they're together and they're happy and they're not doing the whole, like, we can't be together, but we must be together, but we can't. Oh, woe is us. Like, this is so much better when they're just, like, having a date and they're making jokes and they're telling each other how they're feeling by making up these fortune cookie fortunes. And it's just really cute. And I didn't even mind the ridiculously corny line when Liz says her parents are out something about being out in the morning something about Venus being out in the morning sky they're out at the stargazing camp looking for Venus and Max says I thought she was right in front of me and I was like ew aw ew (laughs) aw and she also Liz tells Max that her parents are away for the weekend which I know is for us to set up why Michael's just staying at their house and no one cares but like is she inviting him over She's like, just so you know. Yeah. A little cheeky. Very forward. This is uh, only their first date, and they are like sophomores in high school. Maybe they're just going to pre-Netflix and chill, VHS and chill. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I should mention, during this uh, Chinese pool hall scene is where we get our first, and I believe only, laugh count during this episode who laughs is it genuine liz laughs i do believe it is it is genuine because max got chalk on his nose so she laughs at him oh yeah that's right that's cute (laughs) yes but then we can't have more than five minutes without some teen angst so enter maria Mm -hmm. with some bad news michael has i guess hitchhiked his way (laughs) back into town and went Straight to the crash down? That doesn't make sense. Although I guess where else would he go? It's not like he can go home. Wouldn't he go to the Evans's house? He's not really welcome there. I think the last time we were there... Um, oh, I think he is. He climbed out the window. Yeah, but I think that's his issue more than it's like Mr. and Mrs. Evans's issue. I think that's him feeling like he doesn't want to impose or like their happy little family is their thing and he doesn't feel comfortable being part of it. I didn't get the impression that they, like, didn't want him around. Hmm. I thought that we got that impression from a previous episode, but I might just be making that up. But also, maybe he did go there first, and Max and Isabel weren't there. Maybe. So, he drinks water, he feels better, he wants to go home. And so, again, Max offers to drive him, and Michael brushes him off. Like, is he hitchhiking home now? Maybe that's close enough to walk, but I don't know. That trailer park that we saw looked like it was kind of isolated. Yeah, it did look pretty isolated when we saw it from the outside. Who knows? And I do like this line where, so Isabel is now being very nice to Alex, and she asks him if he needs a ride, and he says, what I really need is a sedative. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Alex. I also like in this scene, Alex uh, recommends echinacea, which sounds like Maria's influence on him. If you ask me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Maybe his parents are a little bit hippie, yeah. too. Who knows? In the book, his dad is like a military, like high up in the military, like sergeant, like everything in line type dude. But we haven't we haven't heard anything about his parents in the show in the TV series. So maybe they're hippies. 
Um, Maria's hippie instincts seem to be uh, ebbing as she and Liz are just chowing down on some ice cream. Unless maybe it's like vegan coconut ice cream or something. I don't know. And it's pretty cute. Yeah. They're talking about how explosive it is to kiss aliens. Yeah, although this was another thing that I didn't really buy. Like, they've said it was a few days after Liz and Max's first kiss, but she hasn't told Maria about it. I don't believe that. I think Liz would have called her immediately and been like, guess what just yeah. happened? Or at the very least told her as soon as she saw her the next day. Yep. There's no way it's been a couple days. And she's like, oh, yeah, I mean, whatever. We kissed. It's meh. But also it was amazing. I agree. She would have told her right away. But this does give them, like you said, Lorena, the chance to talk about how explosive it is to kiss aliens and all the cells in your body just line up and start heating up. It's like, dang, ladies. (laughs) All right. This also gives us one of my favorite lines of the episode when Maria's, you know, she's being all like cool and like too cool for it. And she's like, I'm Teflon, babe. I love that line. The delivery of it, the babe at the end of it. It's just so great. Yeah, it was really cute. It was a great line, although I also don't believe her. Yeah. Because she's clearly affected by it. She's just putting on this face she's for totally, Liz. She's totally, yeah. But I do, I think that the way that they talk about all this is really interesting because it seems like these are the first relationships that they're having that they think could get serious. And so it's that like teenage thing of trying to figure out like, are these feelings so much stronger because I really like, like or maybe even love this person or is it just that like my hormones are going crazy and my body is like ooh yeah and so I I think this was an interesting thing that they do where like that are the aliens really exciting the cells in their body or is this just them like growing into and exploring their sexuality we'll never know unless we also get to kiss aliens and experience that explosive energy for ourselves all right new mission fingers crossed yeah listeners if any of you are aliens (laughs) and are interested in a science experiment you know hit us up yeah macking on aliens (laughs) and then we head to the ufo center where alex is gonna show isabel some stuff about the hieroglyphs in machu picchu Yeah, so I think Alex means well, but I feel like this is a reference to the ancient aliens conspiracy theory, which I hate a lot. So if anyone's not familiar with it, this is the idea that things like the pyramids in Egypt or Machu Picchu or other um, indigenous buildings in Central and South America like couldn't possibly have been built at the time that they were built by the people who built them so it must be aliens and this is problematic because they're usually referencing Mm non-white civilizations who were far more advanced than european civilizations were at that time Mm -hmm. so it's this kind of like mm, sort of racist sort of colonialist type idea that like oh, no, well, the non-white people couldn't possibly have been more advanced than the white people. So, like, obviously, the only logical solution is aliens. Yeah, obviously aliens did it. Instead of believing what's right in front of you. So it's cute that Alex thinks he's helping, and I don't think he means to be condescending either, but he also, like, doesn't consider that they've known they were aliens for a while, and they've probably thought of all of these things. Mm -hmm. Like, this... This he he's not bringing this bold new perspective to it. This isn't some genius idea. Isabel's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. man, I know. He's human splaining. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he's also drawing a lot of unnecessary attention, yelling, "What if this could help you find your planet?" His voice got louder for that line. I know. Yeah. Thank goodness that Milton is around to chastise him for making what he thinks is a joke. Because, geez, Louise, Alex, like, think before you speak, yeah. buddy. Yeah, that could have been bad. But luckily, Milton. <laughs> Milton to the rescue. Oh, Milton is so serious. He's the best. <laughs> and Milton here refers to himself as a ufologist. Yeah. We've been saying ufologist. So I don't know what the correct pronunciation is. But that's just going to have to be one of life's enduring mysteries, I guess. So before we leave the UFO center, Michael shows up 
And he is now super, super sick. His eyes are all fucked up and uh, he's calling for Max. And In my notes, I wrote Michael extra sweaty with contacts. <laughs> my notes say, well, there it says Michael is super sick. And then the next time we <laughs> see him, white contact lenses. Creepy. <laughs> but yes, uh, but before we get to the white contact lenses, we do cut to the crash down where Liz Ooh. is apparently a manager now. Hey, girl. Hey. But I kind of thought she always was. But, you know, with her crazy pie charts of scheduling so and things. I take issue with this because why, Liz shouldn't be a manager. It's too much responsibility. Her family appears to be comfortably middle class. They don't need her to do this they're off stargazing and are like you be in charge of everything in addition to what is presumably a heavy course load like they're just foisting all of their responsibilities off on their 16 year old daughter and it seems like they're in a privileged enough position that she shouldn't have to deal with this so i no i don't like it maybe she wants to maybe i think it's too much stress for a teenager to handle I mean, I would agree. I wouldn't have wanted to be managing a restaurant when I was in high school, even if it was a restaurant that I had already been working at. Like, it's one thing to work to support your family or even just to contribute to the family business. But like, it's another to work to support your parents' stargazing camp trips. Like, come on. They just aren't interested in showing up to work. So they put Liz in charge. Not cool. (laughs) Oh, and then Michael shows up with his creepy white contact lenses and they take him upstairs because Liz's family's out of town so they can hide him there. And Isabel says nothing like this has ever happened before, which is the same line that she said in Blood Brother about what's happened to Max. So this is a lot of firsts for her. And as we get more into the episode and we see more of Liz's reactions, I think it would have been a lot more interesting and more impactful if we had focused on Isabel's reaction mm-hmm. because she's like she's dealing with something serious and something real and something that hits her like in her heart and Liz's thing seems kind of trivial in comparison. I think this is a thing that the writers have done before where they mm-hmm. just want to push the Max and Liz storyline so heavily that like they don't think about what makes the most sense from the story perspective and like this is another thing where i think this could have been a really interesting exploration of what it looks like when teenagers have to face mortality for the first time like there's this thought that teenagers often think of themselves as invincible but it's also for a lot of people the first time when you experience death especially for someone who's like close to your age i think most high schools you have like a car accident or a drinking or drug related death at some point or even illness like it's a it's a tough thing to conceptualize and it raises a lot of questions about the fairness of the universe which would have been even more fun to look at with aliens mm-hmm. who were sent here for some purpose it would have been cool to see Isabel being like well why would we be sent here just to die here without ever getting any answers could have been an interesting parallel to like cancers where like it just comes out of the blue and you don't know why it's there and you can't do anything and you're suddenly powerless against it and there are all these feelings that they could have explored and they didn't. And I also don't know why Max doesn't try to save Michael, try to heal him, because Max told us that he has some secret cosmic connection and he knows whenever it's everyone's time to die. So why doesn't he at least make an effort to save Michael? I don't know if it would have worked because it seems like what's wrong with Michael is like this mystical thing. But I think he should have tried. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of thoughts, Lisa. <laughs> yep. <laughs> My thoughts tend to come in barrages. (laughs) I like them all. It just was, I don't know where to weigh in on any of it now. Sorry, I just got going and then I was just so upset because so much wasted (laughs) potential for storytelling. That's okay. Oh, yeah. So I think uh, you were talking about that they like are pushing the Liz and Max storyline and they're like billed as the leads of the show. But I agree that... It could have been a lot more interesting if it really was more of an ensemble cast where there was more ebb and flow of who was the center center point of a particular episode or a specific theme. Like it's always through Liz's lens specifically as the ingenue. But one of the things I like in the books is the different like the first book really is uh, Liz and max's story and then the second book you get more you get alex and isabel coming to the forefront and the third book you get 
Michael and Maria coming to the forefront in what's going on in their lives. And I really like that, like, trade off of who the center point is. And I think that would have been cool. And I think you get that a little bit more in the new series, which we will talk about eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do take issue with Isabel's line that Max and Michael are all she has because they have really loving parents, it seems like. And they kind of ignore them in this, which I don't think is super realistic. Like, I don't think Isabel would be calling them or anything, but she thinks of them as family. Mm hmm. Yeah, but there, I mean, but there is something to be said for the fact that they uh, have this huge secret about who they are that they have to keep from them and that they don't know how they would respond if they knew the truth. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's probably safe to say they are their parents and lo- love them unconditionally. Yeah, I, one would hope. Any big secret that you reveal to your parents about who you are in in your innermost depth, the correct response from a parent is thank you for telling me. I love you very much. How can I support you? And I think that the Evanses are the type of parents who would do that, who would respond correctly. It does not mean the incorrect responses do not happen, but they are incorrect. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Also incorrect is when you take someone's temperature and it is too high for the thermometer to read and you're like, I don't think we'll give him Tylenol or take him to a hospital. Like, I guess they think this is something that traditional medicine couldn't solve, but like, at least treat the symptoms. They're trying to bring his temperature down by covering him in ice. Like, no, give him give him some aspirin. Give him a fever reducer. And Michael has this dramatic moment where his eyes turn white. These are the lovely contacts y'all were talking about. And he just goes... Forever dog. <laughs> <laughs> Giving them all the helpful clue that they need. So Max and Liz, once again, go to the reservation. There's a sign that says, Welcome to the homelands of the Mesa Lico Indian Tribe Commercial and Administrative Center, three miles. They should go to that center and politely ask for what they want. But instead, the white kids just show up and start making demands. And once again, Handsome Eddie has to be there to be like, uh, no, this is not acceptable. This isn't how we behave in society. Stop it. He says, you're not welcome here anymore. And then Max is just like grabs him and starts yelling in his face. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're trespassing. I wish Eddie had called the tribal police and had them escorted from the land. But like, this is so inappropriate and like so unnecessarily almost violent of max i didn't care for this at all Mm-hmm. same and then he's like well we'll just wait and then like nobody seems to mind that they're just gonna take up space on the reservation and like wander yeah. around go yeah, for a walk like, like just continue invading like yeah i did not like this part at all i don't like at it all i also eddie says river dog wants nothing to do with you you betrayed his trust and that's something he won't forgive and that sentiment makes a lot of sense and is totally undermined by river dog coming and being like the white people need help i am here i will help yeah. them it's like i don't understand why he would be that eager to help them i just don't like i know he's a nice person and he doesn't want to let this kid die and that's i appreciate that but like it does seem really weird that he just has no ad, no admonition for them, no, like, you guys can't keep showing up here and just expecting me to bait your beck and call. When he does show up, he's just like, okay, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so we had a little break where we go back to Isabel, who, like, I really felt for her in this. I wish she hadn't been pushing Maria and Alex away, but I get that she's just like, these two people are my whole world. I don't know what I would do if I lost one of them. And she's totally freaking out and doesn't know how to even like begin to think through this situation. I think Catherine Heigl did a really good job with this. Yes. But then we go back to Max and Liz trespassing on everyone's property, looking at whatever they feel like looking at. Yep. Just taking up time, taking up space. Like, yeah, this is an interesting time for Max to be like, Let me tell you this long emotional story about my childhood. I do like the way that Max tells the story of meeting Michael for the first time when they're kids and he's reaching out his hand for Michael and Michael doesn't take it. 
But when they first step out and he sees Michael, he says, it's just like you'd expect from Michael. Here I am. Deal with me. And then he said the hardest thing he ever had to do was trust Max and Isabel. Aww. I was like, uh-uh. But he didn't trust whoever was coming who rescued Max and Isabel. He instead went somewhere else for three years. Yeah. Which I don't think we knew before. No, we didn't. And Isabel cried every night, apparently. Aww. Yeah. So sad oh, to think of them like as little kids and her crying. Yeah. And her parents probably were so concerned and didn't know why she was crying all the time. Yeah. Well, and they didn't even know how to talk at first, so they couldn't communicate. Yeah. Like, there was another little boy. Go back. Save him, please. Oh, what a bummer. And Liz is so centered on her own pain that she hears this story about Max and is like, but what if you die? I would be sad. I'm like, baby girl, stop it. <laughs> this stop is it not now. your moment. <laughs> no. And, like, Max indicates that he thinks this might just be part of their life cycle, which makes no sense because they know that it's something that happened in the sweat lodge caused this. So, like, this whole thing doesn't make sense. And then Max, I think, is weirdly, like, understanding where he's like, oh, committing to someone is hard enough without having to wonder if they're going to be here tomorrow. But, like, this is a universal experience. Yeah. This is true of anyone in a relationship with anyone because we're all mortal. Yeah. Things happen. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, totally. And also, it's weird. He's, like, you know, saying, I understand that you have second thoughts or if you have doubts all the while stepping closer to her and caressing her face. Like, maybe he doesn't understand, uh, her. you know, that she might be second-guessing. And, like, you know, if she's trying to second-guess, if you're trying to be understanding of it, then give her some space to have those doubts. Yeah, maybe if she had thought it through more, she would have realized that, okay, Max might be more likely to die at the hands of some wacky government scientist but in general he's less likely to die than any human she would date because he doesn't get sick mm-hmm. he survives car accidents very well as we've seen mm-hmm. so like i this whole thing is just an obstacle for them being together because that's what the writers wanted to do it just feels really hollow yeah. and false and narcissistic oh yeah yeah it makes liz look bad for no reason it's someone else who's sick someone else's love interest Yet she's just worried about herself and what she might lose. Yeah, she's actually like the least involved in yeah. this. Of all the characters, she has the least relationship with Michael. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. like friends because he stole her diary and then gave it back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your, your pain is whatever. So I think then we go back to Liz's room where Michael is, you know, encased in some kind of A weird cocoon. webbing. <laughs> so is it... Liz's room or is it her parents room? Good question. I assumed it was Liz's, but you're right. It could be her parents room since they're away. It's not decorated like Liz's room, but none of the sets are consistent from one episode to the other. So who knows? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. But what's sweet here is that Maria brings Isabel some food and also brings her a whole bottle of Tabasco. Yeah. Because she was like, I don't know how much you wanted. It's just very thoughtful. It's It's sweet. It's sweet. Yeah, it is. I will say maybe some soup would have been better. Like, how is he going to eat a sandwich, Maria? But it was a nice thought. (laughs) I thought the food was for Isabel. Oh, no, I think she said that Michael should eat something. Like, because drinking water made him feel better. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, I thought it was for Isabel, too. I don't know. Either way, it's very sweet that she brought the Tabasco, too. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that was very cute. And then back at the reservation, Liz and Max hear the same Cirque du Soleil chant, and they start spying on this sacred ritual because they have the right to do whatever the heck they want. Cool, cool, cool. And then we get the first visions from Michael. I don't think he's in the webbing yet. First, he's like convulsing, and then he gets these visions. He sees a V-shaped constellation in the sky, which will come back. And there's some interesting cinematography in this and in the future vision scenes. The cinematography is by John S. Bartley, who also worked on the X-Files and on Lost. So he has lots of experience doing this surreal thing. And I don't think it works like super duper well here, but I think it's like they're doing something different and it's cool. And it's a, uh, a fun new visual style that we haven't seen before. Also something that I found interesting about this um, this like dream sequence kind of hallucination thing is that it's 
nighttime, but it's also the daytime. Like he sees this V, stars in the shape of a V in the sky. So it's nighttime, but then also he's in the desert and it's daytime, which I thought was funny because of the show's inconsistency of time. Yeah. <laughs> but like a dream <laughs> sequence is okay to do this, you know, to do that in. Right. This is the this is the appropriate situation where time doesn't need to work. When your characters have to go to school, it's a different story. So then we have River Dog being like, cool, I'm here to serve you. And then Michael's in the, the spider web thing. Alex is like, oh, crap, this is like a real situation that's happening in my life now. Okie dokie. Yeah, this is where I wrote, Michael is mummified. So you're oh, right. Yes. This is where he's like in that weird web thing. <laughs> yeah. And it sort of, it's a reflection of what he saw in the vision where he saw himself yeah. almost like buried alive in the dirt. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then we're back at the reservation, and I feel like we skipped something, because suddenly Michael is at the reservation, right? Like, at what point did they move him? What was that like? How did they get him there? You know, it's just like, we definitely skipped something, because all of a sudden they're all in this cave, and Michael's there too. And Riverdog tells them about uh, the visitor, who he called Nacero, um, and he's saying that Nacero also had a weird reaction to the thing. So this, that's what the test was? So it's kind of like yeah. one, one of those old tests that they did, like, during the Salem Witch Trials, where they, like, you know, throw them in water. If they can float, they're a witch. If they sink, they're human, but either way, they're dead. You know, it's kind of like why did he do this if he knew it could kill him? Well, they he said that some of the elders thought Nacero was an evil spirit, and so that's why they invited him in for the test. And I guess failing that test shows that you're an evil spirit. And so, they yeah, they totally like cast him out to die. Yeah. Which, yikes, that's a little harsh. And then uh, Riverdog explains to them what this ritual is that's going to help heal the uh, Michael with these stones that's going to help reset his balance and um, I loved that Alex is the newest one to this group and he was the first person to step up hmm. and help mm-hmm. yeah but it also highlights Liz's complete failure because she's the first one who found out about the aliens she has had the longest time to process this this affects her that well maybe yeah probably affects alex the least but it doesn't really affect her that much and yet she's so focused on her own potential future pain that she can't even river dog is like dude no get out of my ritual you're gonna mess it up um i also i thought it was interesting like he explains river dog says that the balance was affected by the heat in the sweat lodge and i say oh y'all Aliens need to stop living in New Mexico yeah. and move yourselves to Minna frickin' Soda or something. Yeah. <laughs> Go somewhere where it doesn't get move hot. Move to Canada. Right? Also, the government How? might treat you better. Yeah. Ooh, good point. <laughs> yeah, and so Riverdog explains to him about the balance, the name of the episode. And he Ooh. says that the balance can pull you in. <laughs> it's a force that can change both your body and your mind unless you navigate it properly. And he warns them when they step into the vision state with Michael not to change the way they feel about him, which I thought was kind of interesting. Like, what would that mean? How would that happen? But luckily, it seems like everyone except Liz keeps it together. Well, maybe Mm -hmm. Max, because Max has Max conjured Liz into the vision. Is that what we're meant to believe? I think so. Either that or like Michael is starting to come through come to in a way enough that he can feel her presence in the space and that she is not in the circle but she is in the space Mm. i don't know exactly but where's river dog we don't see river dog in the visions we don't see him in the cave we don't see him when they're doing the thing with the stones after michael gets up like did he just set them all up for this ritual and then just walk out of the cave and leave apparently and they all magically knew the chant to say yeah so they must have gone to see Cirque du Soleil at some point. When did they yes. memorize yeah. that? Also, he gives them this water to drink from a bowl right after saying that, um, basically saying that he poisoned Michael. Why are they trusting him to drink from that bowl? Like he says it's water, but is it? I don't think he poisoned Michael. 
I I mean, he was a test and he knew he could get sick from it. Yeah, I think he thought, though, that if Michael got sick, it would have been right away. And I'm assuming he would have just cured him. I don't think he was anticipating this delayed reaction. And so we don't know why. Like, why did it take longer for Michael to get sick than it took for Nacero? And does it have anything to do with these incubation pods they were in? Uh, I'm wondering if that question will be answered. Like, are they fundamentally different than this other alien in some way? Mm. But I thought the, again, the cinematography was cool in this vision. You have the intercut scenes of the little kid aliens and the teen aliens reaching out. And this time Max gets to change the narrative and bring Michael with him and they're all together. And it's very nice. I really liked the cinematography in this section with just the really solid, like, I feel like they did a really good job of just really paralleling the the setup of the characters in both the young and the adult form, like the the cut back and forths were really solid. And suddenly Michael has tapped into some innate knowledge about the rocks that they all have. And so um, they go to the the drawings that Max hadn't shown him before. Maybe this could have triggered a memory for Michael at some point. We don't know, mm-hmm. but it does now. And this is a what Michael says is a map. And it's that same V-shaped constellation that he saw in the vision. So this is interesting. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if the ratings are like planet names or if they're directions. I don't know. Mm. Guess we'll find out. Maybe. Also, Michael comes to and he is showing them all this. At no point does he say like, thank you to all of them yeah. for all coming together. Yeah. yeah. And so Liz is at least reflecting on how she totally failed. She we Again, like the writers have told us that she's super logical, that she's always there. And she tells us now she's always been the one to come through in a crisis and she doesn't panic. But seeing Michael like this made her concerned, again, not for Michael, but concerned that someday something would happen to Max and not even concerned for Max. She wouldn't know what to do, how to help. Yeah. As always, she's just thinking of herself. Right. And like in this situation, you did know exactly how to help. You just couldn't get it together to do it. So, like, this doesn't even make any sense. Like, this is a situation where, again, someone who was very close to other characters got sick. For a while, they didn't know how to fix it. Then they got a solution. And, like, as soon as they had the solution, Liz was like, I, I can't. I just, <laughs> oh, my, come on. And then Max shows up to break up with her. Yep. Drama, drama, drama. Seems fair. I'm fine with it. Although, I, yeah, again, this is another one of those things where it's like, this isn't a real reason, but we need an obstacle because we're doing this Romeo and Juliet thing, and so you can't be together. So um, Max has been feeling off balance. There you go. Don't belong together. Can't be together. Bye. Yep. He's got to focus. And, like Max even acknowledges that they're in love, but he's like, oh, I need to take a step back. And Liz is like, okay, I hear that you need to take a step back, but I'm going to kiss you now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh. Oh, buddy. It seems like it seems like Max just really feels most at home and most comfortable while tortured. Yep. He's just a tortured soul. Someone needs to give him a guitar. He and Alex can start an emo band. <laughs> yes. And maybe he can work out some of his issues. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I see Max as like a a quiet bass player type. Yeah. Max is in like the angel vein of yeah. just like I need to be brooding. Exactly. He probably went home to read Soft by a Fire <laughs> with his shirt off. Yes. <laughs> At least he's not super flammable like Angel. <laughs> I mean, everyone's kind of flammable. You know, it's not great for anyone to catch on fire. Fair. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, so our very, our last shot is of this V constellation in the ah, sky. there it is. Dun, 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 dun. Home. Uh, so now I believe we have some business to attend to. Now let's see who's hot and saucy. So who did y'all pick for your hot and saucy? My hot and saucy is not just one person, but it's the kiss that Michael and Maria share in Michael's dream. 
Ooh. Mm. Mine is Eddie because he is hot. This is the last time we see him, which I'm sad about. And I wish that he had gotten to be saucier and had been like, all right, get off our land. If you're not gone in five minutes, I'm calling the tribal police and they're going to force you to leave the land. Bye. But he didn't get to do that. So I'm going to do it for him right now. (laughs) Max and Liz, get off my land. I'm too handsome to deal with this. That's how that should have gone. I've got the tribal police on the phone right now. Yeah. A little sauciness would have been good, but whatever. He's still pretty darn hot. And what about you, Elisa? I think that for this one, instead of picking a person, I'm picking a, an, an inanimate object. Uh, okay. And I would like to pick Maria's waitress from Hell pin because Maria is hot and that pin <laughs> is saucy. Yes, sure I like is. it. <laughs> So our last order of business for this episode is Lisa's predictions. So Lisa, based on the episode title, The Toy House, what do you think is next for our characters? I think that we find out that Jim and Kyle have been living inside of a toy house this whole time. And that's why it looks completely different every episode, because it's like a little kid and they're just mixing and matching different places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. That's my big prediction. I do hope we get the sheriff and Kyle in the next episode because we didn't have them. And I could really use a break from... The insipid romantic drivel that the writers seem super committed to for the Max and Liz story. I also want Topolsky to come back. I don't think we got a good wrap up for her character. And it seems like they they mentioned her in the last episode, which seems like they're not totally done with her. I do want to be done with the whole magical Indian trope, which I discussed. But I am still concerned because it looks like Ned Romero returns in one more episode, Into the Woods, for which I would like to predict that we put together a musical number because I really want to do that. (laughs) We can do that. (laughs) Okay, great. Everyone stay tuned for our full-length Broadway quality production. Absolutely. (laughs) I've got Lin-Manuel on the line now. (laughs) Excellent. I wish. Thanks for joining us for this conversation about Liz's self-centeredness, Michael's spider-webbiness, and the show's general problematicness. We'll be back next Tuesday with a mini-sode where we'll be discussing the Disney Channel original movie Stepsister from Planet Weird. And then we will be taking a short break for the holidays, but don't worry, we'll be back on January 7th with our discussion of Season 1, Episode 11, The Toy House. And don't forget that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and that if you give us a rate and a review, that really helps other people find us. Don't forget to go over to our website at roswellhotsauce.com to check out some bios about us you can listen to stuff there and also some really great show notes for each episode you can also find us on twitter and instagram at roswell hot sauce and you can email us any thoughts questions or suggestions at roswellhotsauce at gmail.com pass the hot sauce is produced and edited by ashley hullett our theme music is by david belcourt our logo was designed by billy murray until next time Here I am. Deal with me.